Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. And not only was I engaged in looking at pornography on a, on a nearly daily basis, I was engaged in other kinds of sexual behaviors like masturbation, um, cyber sex, chat rooms, um, even phone sex. And that progressed in my life even after I became a Christian at the age of 15 at summer camp. Um, but certainly after that experience of, of accepting the Lord, I... I had a, a new sense of conviction about it. Um, I had even more shame about it. Um, didn't know who to tell. I knew I, want, I needed to stop and I wanted to stop, but didn't know how to stop. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to episode 18 of our program. I'm Michael John Cusick. Over the last few years, the issue of pornography addiction has moved from the shadows into the light of mainstream conversation. Whether it's the recent cover of Time magazine, the floor of the Utah State Legislature where porn addiction was declared a public health crisis, the reality of porn addiction and its destructive impact is finally being discussed in meaningful ways. For example, sociological research is now establishing links between the proliferation of porn and such things as sex trafficking, child pornography, sexual assault, increased rates of marital infidelity, even erectile dysfunction and young men that are addicted to porn. Despite the growing conversation and growing data, at least one issue remains cloaked in shame and stigma, women who are addicted to pornography. But my guest today on the program is working to change all this. Crystal Renault was caught up in pornography for eight years. After experiencing healing and freedom, she founded Dirty Girls Ministries, an organization that exists to provide help, hope, and healing to women struggling with pornography and sexual addiction. Crystal is also an author, speaker, and professional life coach from the Kansas City area. Her books include Dirty Girls Come Clean, in which Crystal shares her story of freedom and includes steps and recovery questions for personal or group study. Her second book, 90 Days to Wholeness, expounds upon Dirty Girls Come Clean to help women journey through 90 days of daily recovery. Crystal's work has been featured in the New York Times, ABC News, CNN, Christianity Today, The 700 Club, and more. She holds a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and four certifications, including professional life coaching from the American Association of Christian Counselors. At the outset of this program, I want to encourage you to share this podcast with women 
in your circle of influence. As you listen, you may be surprised at the facts concerning the prevalence of women and pornography use. But as Crystal shares, during our conversation, the most important thing we can do is have the conversation. Well, Crystal Renault, welcome to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be finally a part of your show. Yeah, I'm glad that we could do this. We've talked before uh, about writing and my book and, and your book, and I'm glad that we can talk now to hear more about your ministry and your story. But I want to begin by just saying uh, that for some time now, you're my hero. <laughs> Um, I, I read your book uh, when it first came out, and at the time, it was the only thing that I had ever read where there was uh, a woman sharing her story of sexual brokenness, and I was just blown away by it. And the reason why you're my hero is that I, I only have a, a small sense of the amount of courage that it would have taken to do what you did by sharing your story publicly and putting it into a book so that others can have hope. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I'm, I'm thankful to know now that other women are starting to write things and um, be more open about their struggle because certainly I, I, I believe I was one of the only ones at the time that had ever written it, written about it. Um, and so to have others come alongside me, it's actually thrilling in a, in a weird way. <laughs> Yeah, you were a pioneer in a way that really required boldness. So will you will you uh, start out our podcast by uh, sharing a little bit of your story and uh, the hope of of what you've experienced, the, the real rescue that you've experienced in your own life? Sure, absolutely. Um, when I was 10 years old, um, I was, I'd, we just moved here to Kansas and um, I was kind of home alone a lot as I came home from school. And when I came home one afternoon, I stumbled upon a pornographic magazine in my brother's bathroom. I had, I had two older brothers who were uh, 15 and 13. And it was my oldest brother's bathroom that I had went into just because I needed to go. Um, and, but he had, a, you know, I don't know if he accidentally left it there or just was, was kind of mindlessly didn't think about it, but there was a very um, graphic pornographic magazine left there, um, and curiosity took over, as it does when you're a child. And instead of uh, walking away from that magazine that day, I kind of dove headfirst into it um, and just really just consumed it um, for a good long while as I sat there. Um, immediately, that those the images. And the scenes that were in that magazine um, filled me with two conflicting feelings. I had feelings of, of, of immediate shame, like, oh, I should not be looking at this. This is not for me to be looking at. But at the same time, it also filled me with, like, wow, this is, like, something I've never experienced before. This, like, makes me feel good in kind of a roundabout way. And it was through that experience of that magazine that instead of telling someone about it and saying, you know, mom, dad, did you know that he had this in the bathroom? It kind of became my own personal refuge, kind of kind of a retreat for me um, as the days and weeks and months went on. Um, and then one day went in there and it was no longer there anymore. 
and it was very um, disturbing to me. Like it was like, what? But I need that. It was like it was almost like this this um, uncontrollable like urge. Like, oh my god, I have to have this. Where can I get? Where is it? Why can't I find it? And where can I get more? So immediately, even at the age of ten, and at this point, I think I was eleven. I was hooked. And, um, so from there I looked for, and I, I didn't know it was called pornography. Um, but I, ca- I looked for material like this every day for the next eight years of my life. Um, whether it was on TV with cable, whether it was eventually we got internet at home, internet at school, when I was in high school, I um, would look at it at school, in the library. I would look at it even in the church office. Um, anywhere that I could find pornography, eventually I learned that it was called pornography, I would look for it. And not only was I engaged in looking at pornography on a, on a nearly daily basis, I was engaged in other kinds of sexual behaviors like masturbation, um, cyber sex, chat rooms, um, even phone sex. And that progressed in my life even after I became a Christian at the age of 15 at summer camp. Um, but certainly after that experience of, of accepting the Lord, I, I had a, a new sense of conviction about it. Um, I had even more shame about it. Um, didn't know who to tell. I knew I, want, I needed to stop and I wanted to stop, but didn't know how to stop or who to talk to or how to get help. And let me just uh, let me just interject there. It's at this point in your story where most people go, well, surely, you know, you became a Christian and you were convicted about this and therefore you stopped, right? This is the part of the story where, boom, uh, you're rescued and the addiction goes away. But that's not always the case. I don't think that's ever the case, unfortunately. Um, for the women that I've talked to and even men I've talked to, it almost was as if their faith journey made the addiction worse in a way because not only are you still struggling and you think, well, I must not really be saved then, um, and you have these conflicting feelings about is your faith even genuine, um, because certainly if I was saved, then I wouldn't have this struggle anymore. Um, so I really, I had, I had that confliction as well, struggling with, well, did I really, do I really know the Lord? Do I really love the Lord? And do I, um, am I really saved? You know, um, and I'd pray about it and I'd say, Lord, you need to get me, get me out of this. You need to provide me a way out. You need to do this, 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 and this to get me through. And unfortunately I, I continue to struggle. And I think my, the biggest reason for that struggle was because I was isolated. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I didn't know. I didn't know any other women in the world could have had this struggle. I firmly believed I was the only one, which, of course, is what the enemy tells you, um, that this is something that only you struggle with. This is You're weird. You must be gay or you must be this or that. Nobody, nobody else will understand you. And Crystal, did that did that isolation and sense of struggle about being the only one did that intensify as a believer because of the like I need to be more secretive about this? Absolutely, because certainly I think if I hadn't had um, my church community and the understanding that you know 
sex was not created to be on screen, um, that I think, I don't think I would have had the conviction that I had. I don't think I would have had the concerns about it that I had, because certainly the world tells you that it's fine. Um, I think for me, knowing that, um, even on Sunday morning, we would have periodic sermons about men don't look at pornography, men be faithful to your wives, men watching pornography is like adultery, men that men that men and men and men and men. Um, and so for me to hear it as a man's issue, even from my own pastors and my and from the pulpit, that even more ingrained in me that I was weird. That's mm. wrong with me because I must be like a man. And so certainly men or women don't struggle with this. So I can't tell anybody that I do. Um, and so it wasn't until I was 18, almost 19 years old. So this is talking about eight, almost nine years of struggling in silence and being alone in a struggle that I even, um, I met a woman. They'd only been an acquaintance to each other at church um, but she felt in her own spirit that I needed to hear her story, her real story. And that story was that she had been hooked on porn as a teenager. And so for me to hear her confess that or to say that out loud to me, it was like, it, it was everything. I mean, it literally gave me hope. This was what I had been praying for was that somehow, some way, I would have someone that I could tell. And so for her to confess and to say that out loud to me, it gave me the gift to say, me too. And through that um, confession, we were able to build a relationship of accountability and really understanding what it meant to surrender not only my addiction and my struggle to the Lord, but what was driving that addiction and that struggle, which, of course, through counseling, I discovered was really a lack of intimacy and affection from my parents and my dad in particular and how the enemy used pornography and sexual behavior to kind of give me a, you know, a counterfeit to what I was really needing in my life. It's so powerful. The power of the me too, when somebody shares their story like that, how it can immediately take you out of that isolation and give you the opportunity to, to connect in the very way that, the lack of intimacy or the lack of ability to be intimate um, prevents us from. Absolutely. And you don't have to talk about this unless you're comfortable, but I, I watched your almost 30-minute mini documentary on the 700 Club, and it's a very powerful uh, vignette and, and production of your story. And in there, you share that before the end, when you really got free and started to become whole, that that your addiction escalated to a point where you put yourself at risk. Yes. And the reason I want to ask about this is because I think so many other women escalate so much more quickly from the time period where you began to struggle at age 10 to now, texting and everything else has made it so that a person can go from A to Z literally within days. Oh, yeah. I think about the fact that I'm almost thankful that my struggle was not in the major technology age I can just imagine how much worse it could have gotten for me. And it got bad enough. Um, for me, well, I'll, I'll just begin with, with some with, with a piece of statistics. Um, they, they say 80% of women who struggle sexually with sexual addiction, pornography, 
whether it's erotica or um, actual visual porn or um, just even compulsive masturbation or any of these kinds of things, 80% of them will escalate their addiction into in-person encounters. And I was not an exception to that rule, even though um, for me, I grew up in a, in a home where my mom in particular was very much teaching us purity about saving yourself for marriage. You know, sex was for marriage. And so for me, I wanted to hold on to my virginity as long as I possibly could just to, because I believed that that was important. And yet at the same time, you know, mentally I was, I was not a virgin, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, um, for me, it was like, it, it, it kept escalating to the point in which the pornography wasn't enough. Masturbation wasn't enough. The cyber sex wasn't enough. Talking on the phone, the phone sex wasn't enough. And so what was, what was, what was left for me? Um, and so what was left for me was to eventually escalate my, my addiction into a real life encounter with somebody. And that was the kind of thing that I never ever thought I would get that far because I, I really did believe that my virginity was, was important to me and that my virtue was important. Um, but it was the addiction asked for more than that for me. Um, and so I put myself in a situation that was potentially incredibly dangerous by going online and arranging for an anonymous sexual encounter with someone. And I got to the point in which I had actually spoken to this person, arranged what hotel we were going to meet at, and that I was going to get there first, and that they would show up while I was waiting for them. And so I am sitting in a hotel room in a part of town that was not the best, and basically waited... I went to a part of town where I knew no one would know me, basically, is where I went, and then um, waited there for this person to arrive. And as I was sitting there waiting for them, that's when I kind of had my true come-to-Jesus meeting, um, when the Lord just kind of spoke to me in my spirit, like, what are you doing here? Um, and I kind of had to come face-to-face with myself in the mirror, and I asked myself that same question, like, how did you get here? What are you doing here? Um, and that's when I really broke down and it was like, this is, this is not what I want to be doing. This is not who I am. How did I get here? Um, and so in that moment I just prayed, I was like, okay, Lord, you're, you're, you are convicting me in this moment, um, in a way that I needed, but if, in order for me to get out of this mess, you're going to have to get me out of it. Um, and all I can really say is that he gave me the courage not to answer the door when this person arrived. And, um, that day I was able to say no and walk away from that, from that experience. But unfortunately, you know, that didn't, that come to Jesus meeting did not end my struggle either. Um, it just kind of held it at bay for a minute. Um, and then it was, just a few weeks later before I had that meeting with that woman who told me her story. So I know God was, was already orchestrating a divine encounter for me and he wanted me to get to that point. But all that to say, absolutely men or women or women pornography, it can begin as something innocent as a 10 year old girl and take you places you never expected to go.
Yeah, because you never uh, foresaw yourself sitting in that hotel room um, because every each and every time you did it, you, even though you're drawn to it and it felt good, there's also a part of it that you hated. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think that's what is so hard for people that either have not struggled with addictions or that don't understand the porn struggle, male or female, is that is that being torn in two directions of hating it and then yet needing it uh, that is so um, impossible to overcome without grace. Absolutely. And I think we hear that and, and, you know, in, in my ministry a lot from women who have told friends or moms or aunts or somebody at church that they struggle with this and they would say, well, just stop, <laughs> you know, and they, cause they don't understand that it's not as simple as well, just stop. Right. Right. So I want to hear a little bit about your journey of recovery, because it's not just, okay, that hotel incident happened, and then two weeks later, this lady shares with me, and it's never a struggle again. But before we do that, um, can you talk about how the struggle with sexual addiction and pornography in particular is different for women than guys? I know in some ways it's the same, in some ways it's very different. So can you put words to that? Yeah, I would say in, in in many ways it's exactly the same. Um, there's this there's this notion that women are not visually stimulated, right? Which is not true. Um, there's been studies on the brain, and women have the same response to stimuli as men do when looking at pornography and other um, other kind of another kind of stimuli. But at the same time, women are far more emotional. Okay, so. When we are drawn to pornography, we're not drawn necessarily to the nudity or the actual sexual act. We are more drawn to the relationship. Um, we tend to put ourselves into that role of the woman on the screen um, and kind of play it out as a fantasy. Whereas with men, it is very much just a physical or, or um, visual act. For women, it's much more emotional and becomes more, much more of a fantasy. And so I think that would be the, the most, the broadest difference between the two sexes when you're, when you, when you are struggling with pornography in particular. And that's why women tend to get hooked on erotic novels first. Um, not always, but by and large, they begin by looking at a reading, reading erotic novels like Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever, whatever it might be. And then that, through that experience of fantasy, through the written word, it draws them further into the, por the pornography world of looking at stuff online or renting movies or however they want to do it, um, because it is so much driven by fantasy and by emotion. For me in particular, like I was talking about, um, my addiction certainly was heavily driven by the lack of affection I had in, in my life as a child. Um, just because I struggled with, uh, I was the youngest. I had two older brothers and I had my mom and dad who were married, but my dad traveled for 90% of the time. And when he was home, he was disconnected. It was all about mowing the lawn, fixing up the house, resting, sleeping, or helping my brothers with whatever it is that they do as boys. And just really didn't connect with me as, as his daughter. And at the same time, my mom struggled with clinical depression. And so there was just very much this environment was ripe for me to 
then engage in something that was not going to be good for me. Um, and yeah, so and you're you're putting words to the relational underpinnings where there's relational brokenness that, for lack of a better term, um, these are my words, not yours, but that there was a, a kind of hole in your heart that yes. pornography and the addiction fell into that hole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that does go hand in hand with the idea that women are emotional. They are um, in need of affection, relationship, connection, uh, much more than men even. Although I think there's, there is that need in men as well, um, but, but much, much more in women. And so with me in recovery, it was having to understand the difference between what is healthy intimacy, what is healthy affection, Versus something that is unhealthy. And I didn't really get to that point until I took myself to counseling and really started to dig through, you know, what is driving my addiction? Why am I drawn to this? Why is it a struggle for me? And why can't I stop? Um, Because it wasn't all about, uh, because I certainly didn't like it. I mean, because, you know, like you're talking about before, you don't really, you get to a point where you don't like it anymore and you actually begin to despise it. And yet you're still drawn to it and you want to have this, you want it to fill you with the, with what it fills you with. Um, and so for me, recovery looked like getting to the bottom of it, getting to understand what was driving it, why is it a struggle, and healing those parts of myself. And then having accountability in my life was huge. Having this woman in my life who I could talk to when I was struggling was critical because but I went from being alone and isolated with my struggle, having people in my life be kind of at arm's length because I was worried that they would, you know, sniff it out about me, um, to now being in a relationship with someone in my life who knew everything, who knew the darkest parts of who I am, um, and being able to be honest with that person. That was life-giving, to be able to have that in my life. Um, and so for me, it was accountability. It was having, it was having accountability software on my computer. It was about having her in my life to be able to confess to if I did struggle. It was about her ha- having her in my life when I was tempted and just say, you know, right now I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? Um, and so having that, that relationship with her, having that relationship with Jesus Christ to the point in which, you know, like I said before, Knowing how to surrender this to him, not just the behavior, but being able to lean on him to be my my comforter, my provider, the one who gives me what I need, as opposed to something that is a counterfeit. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. dot